As we continue to go through 2 Kings, we pick it up where Elisha is the main prophet, and he's just doing the ministry of the Lord there in the northern kingdom of Israel. And we just pick it up from there. And we just go forward with Elisha tonight and what God's doing through him. Elijah's gone to heaven in glory. Elisha's still here taking care of business. Now, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. Because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel... She waited on Naaman's wife, and then she had said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Well, we'll go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider how how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was, verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes and that that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there's a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses in his chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and and uh, something like that, and heal the leprosy. Are not the Bana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Could I not have washed in them and be clean? So he turned away and went in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God and all of his aides and came and stood before him. And he said, Indeed, now I know there's no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he, Elisha, said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offerings or sacrifices to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the temple of Rimmon to worship there, that he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimmon. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. And then Elisha said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. This is that story of Naaman. As we're going through Kings, and particularly 2 Kings, we just have these ongoing stories between Israel in the north, or excuse me, the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria north of them. And it's just fascinating how they go back and forth. They're like neighbors that just, you know, they, they just go back and forth. Like they have a temporal treaty, and then they agree they're going to do this in the marketplace and make money together, and then they turn on each other. And it's just such an interesting time because Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, is down here. 
And you have Jehoshaphat all these years trying to work things out with the brethren in the north. And then they, you know, there's been history of war going that way, civil war. And then, you know, they got this going with Syria all the time. And then they cross over and they have conflict with Edom and Moab and the other areas. It's like, but Syria is a consistent enemy they keep going at it with, is Syria. And so here we go again. The king of Israel, the son of Ahab's like, oh, what is this, a trap? He's setting me up. He, he, uh, he's setting me up. This, this is all a setup here. He, this is more war for something. And Elisha is like, no, 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 we got, we got this. Send him to me. So Elijah comes in. He's used by the Lord. And here we have a classic example where the Lord is reaching out to a Gentile, a non-Jew in the Old Testament, to bring them really an Old Testament example of saving faith. We know when people have faith in the Old Testament, Jew or Gentile, that they're always going to be saved by faith. It's always going to be faith in the person of God and the promises of God as they understand it at that time. Now, we know God has incrementally revealed himself through different covenants, right? You got Adam, Noah, Abraham, and then the Mosaic covenant, and then the new covenant with Jesus. We have the communion elements tonight to celebrate that. We know the new covenant is the everlasting covenant. We're told in 1 Peter that angels even desired to know the truth of the glorious gospel before it was completely revealed in time, space, and matter. Even the angels didn't know. Certainly the devil didn't know because he wouldn't have possessed Judas to betray Jesus, which is the very thing that brought about the victory of Christ over Satan for our victory. So it just goes to show like Satan, that great fallen angel of glory, even he doesn't know, didn't know the full plans and neither did even the other angels until it was accomplished when Christ was risen from the grave. And we're singing that song and the angels cried with Scott earlier. So appropriate when we're talking about this right now. It's so great a salvation. And we know in the Old Testament that people are always saved by faith. Hebrews 11 makes that clear. And it's a shadow of things to come, but the fullness is Christ. So even when Abraham went up the mountain with Moriah, Mount Moriah with his son Isaac, it's a type of Christ. It's always foreshadows. We could compare it to black and white TV, compared to what you see when you go to the theater now and you lean back and it's just wow, right? It's like you could see it, but not the way we see it. And there's no more covenants to be given. We are in the everlasting covenant, which is awesome. So we have, through the word of God, the capacity to fully understand the riches of God's glory as best we can as human beings this side of eternity. But we are told in the book of Ephesians, when we get to eternity, it'll be that much more richer, understanding the riches of his love, the glory of his grace, and all these beautiful things that God has for us. Some things we just can't get till we get to the other side. Isn't that awesome? Kind of like when you're a kid and just, you don't get it till you become an adult. Or even when you're an adult, until you're in your 60s, taking care of your parents in their 90s, you don't get it. You don't understand it. We're always learning things on our journey as we go, and it's progressive, and we let God keep working until we're done, and then then we're the person in memory care, and that's it. That's the end of the journey, and that's okay because God has a plan in it all. So here, Naaman, this strong, powerful, mighty Syrian king. Now, think about this. We talk about uh, human trafficking is such a massive thing on the planet. It's, it's just global slavery. It's just old-fashioned slavery of nations conquering nations the way they always have in human history, but it's a massive. Millions and millions of people are just in human trafficking, and it's, it's a horrible blight on the human experience right there with emphasite, and it's been there from the dawn of creation. This young girl was human trafficking. She was taken by a band of raiders against her will, it would seem, 
to the north, where now she's serving as a slave to Naaman's wife. But from her positive tone and recommendation to go to Elisha, it would seem that it was, might have been an upgrade for her. Because there is going to be a famine in Israel where things aren't so good, and she's in a high place where she's being taken care of. But she was taken as a slave. That's noteworthy in this text. But she gives a solution. That's awesome, right? That you think about a job you don't like and a boss maybe you don't like and, and how the company policies are and this and that. But in the end, your boss can be a leper. And if you're the one person that's there, even against your will, and it's the only job you can get, and it's the job you got, or however it works, and you can still speak truth and hope and life and direct them toward the very actions that will bring them to saving faith, then praise the Lord. Because that's exactly what she did. You know, the Bible tells us that one plant, one waters, one, yeah, one plants, one waters, and the Lord gives the increase. She's just planting. Elijah's going to water, and when that guy goes seven times, boom, 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 he comes out of the water the seventh time, the Lord gave the increase. It's a beautiful story of God's saving grace for the Gentiles. God always said he had a plan for the nations in the Old Testament prophecies. He showed it time and time again. Jesus referenced it, the woman from Sidon, all these types of things that we already read about earlier on in 2 Kings. It was always there. But for us, through our faith in Jesus and being the church in 2022, we have the fullness of these things. Isn't it awesome to think that we're the fullness of all these things? These are shadows and tights, but tonight when we're gathered here on this Thanksgiving week, we're the fullness of these things. It's awesome. So Naaman did what we all must do. He humbled himself. He was like all of us, prideful. We're all prideful. When... when being raised Catholic and being a, a moderate nominal Catholic all those years and the, and the, 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 the guys, the surfers, the, the pro-surfers and the good surfers are all part of Calvary Chapel, especially on the North Shore of Hawaii. Boy, they'd share the gospel with me. And, uh, and you know, like I remember Adam 12 told me before the Pipe Masters in 1979, Joey, if you receive Jesus, you know, great things will happen. And this is the day of the Pipe Masters. And I said, like, you mean like maybe win the Pipe Masters? Like, maybe. So I prayed to receive Jesus and then I went and lost. True story, Adam 12. <laughs> he was a pipeline surfer. Uh, you, you <laughs> oh, my goodness, yeah. Well, one thing they used to always say, all those born-again believers on the North Shore, is, are you saved? That was particularly offensive to me. Maybe it was offensive to you. I was like, I'm Joy Brand. Like, I'm the California kid. Nobody saves me. I save myself. Like I almost drawn at Lanier K in 15-foot surf. I almost drawn in Big Sunset. I just didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. And people were like, one way, brother, are you saved? I was like, I'm Catholic. You know, what's your problem, man? Of course I'm saved. Well, you need to be saved. You should be saved. And, and I, I got to tell you, that phrase offended me more than any other phrase that uh, evangelical believers would have shared. Oh, it just drove me nuts. And then when I supposedly got saved in 83, I became a Christian, but I still didn't like people being saved. I just, oh, brother, I heard you're saved. I was like, oh, gosh. I was like, Naaman, I just didn't like it. I am the general. I conquer people. I rule. That's how I felt. Until 87, 1987, when I surrendered my life to the Lord, and I truly was saved. I wanted to be in the front row. I wanted to raise my hands in worship. I told you before, when I'd go to North Shore Christian Fellowship and people would be worshiping with their hands raised, I'm like, oh, gosh, don't do that. It just bothered me. 
Like, why, why are you doing that? My sister took my dad to church one time at Calvary Chapel, and she raised her hands, and my dad tried to make her put her hands down. It bothered my dad that much, you know? It's like, there is something like, you're just like, I surrender, like, stick them up. You know, like, it's like Naaman getting dunked seven times. But, you know, God resists the proud, and his grace is available to the humble. So to even be saved, as Charles Spurgeon used to say, my only Charles Spurgeon quote, we all come through a low ceiling. We all have to bow the knee and humble ourselves to be saved. As many as come to him, he will by no means cast out, but he is the only one we can come to. And it's a narrow gate, and it's a low ceiling. And that's what Naaman is. He's a type of someone going forward at a harvest crusade. He's a type of someone opening their heart to the Lord in the, in the, the broken day between them and the Lord. That, that's, who, that's who he is. And he had to be humbled. Because we can't save ourselves. We have to be saved through faith. By grace we've been saved, that through faith, not of fleshly human works, lest we should boast. For there's a work to be done in our life by the Holy Spirit once we are saved by faith, but the work we would do before we're saved by faith is no work at all, but it's a work of the flesh and it's condemned. That's what Ephesians 2 makes very clear, as the whole Bible does. So good news for Naaman, huh? He went for it. And you can just picture him like, what the rivers in Syria? I was raised in this church and I was confirmed in this church and don't you tell me I need to be saved. Well, you know, our church and, you know, that's a real church. This is just a, this is a box store, you know, that these people from Calvary have, like, that's, I've heard it all. Believe me, when we planted the church in Virginia Beach in a little shopping mall center, the Bible Belt in 1991, you think, well, things are pretty progressive. Not that progressive. We were a strange church to most people, right by the Linhaven Mall. Everyone went to church on Virginia Beach in the morning, kind of like Texas in the Bible Belt, and they're wearing suits, and they're going to churches with steeples. And you came to Calvary Chapel, Hampton Roads, I'm in a Billabong t-shirt, and it's in a shopping center. And people that came to our church and committed to our church, they were often ostracized by the organized denominations they came from and the family members that were, you know, my daddy's a deacon in that church, and he's not happy I'm here. He says, you're a cult. Well, I'm pretty sure we're not. Got it all the time. Now, in 2022, no one even cares. They're just happy to go to church. But back then, it was a big deal. Naaman was proud, and God humbled him. And the beautiful thing is, someone spoke sense to him, and he received it. Isn't it awesome when you're all worked up, and someone says, now, just hang on, Joey. It's usually my wife. It's calm down there, Sheriff. Um, but, like, it's just so nice when someone tells you what you need to hear, not necessarily what you want to hear. But what you need to hear, like, hey, 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 you're a great man. If God had told you to go surf 80-foot waves at Mavericks, you'd do it to be saved. Why don't you just get baptized at Oceanside with Brian Broderson? See, it's something like that. We're like, hey, hey, if it was about you doing something great, you would show us you're great. But how much easier just to go in the water and be dunked seven times? You mean it's as easy as going forward and saying a prayer sincerely from your heart at Anaheim Stadium? Yes, it is. Salvation is free, but isn't that first step the hardest step? Because it's taken with humility. All those old Billy Graham movies with worldwide pictures, it was always built around people getting saved and, and the personality and the life. And they'd show the person like under the conviction that one woman was like in five of them and she always got saved. And she's always like, hmm. And she'd be under the conviction when Billy Graham's preaching, she'd be like, hmm, hmm. And she'd be like this. And, and, and it's like the moment like she would go forward to the other people, like it, it would just be, it was a point of brokenness. The gospel had penetrated, and there was repentance and faith. That's what Naaman had. It reminds us that we're saved by grace through faith, through humility and brokenness, and 
our progress in the Lord is going to always happen through like seven times being dunked daily by the Holy Spirit to not walk in pride or arrogance and insolence, right? This is how it begins. This is how it's maintained. And this is definitely how it ends. Because I can't think of anything more humbling than to be in memory care and not know who I am or what day of the year it is or even what year it is. And that could be how it ends. This, this human experience, from the dust we came, the dust will return. Or as David said, I go the way of all men. It is humbling. Life in this body gets more humbling the older you get. Like I said at Poncho's church, you know the difference between 45 and 60, you younger people? When you wake up sore at 45, it's because you played basketball the day before. When you, woke up, when you wake up sore at 60, it's because you're just 60. That's the difference. You didn't do anything to deserve to wake up sore. You're just sore because you're 60. This treasure is in earthen vessels, and it's humbling. So we might as well humble ourselves and just receive everything God has for us. What a wonderful story of humility from Naaman. He received it. Now, and Elijah says, I don't need your money. Go home. Take the dirt. God knows your heart. Go do it. Go in peace. God bless you. Verse 20. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian, while not receiving from his hand what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. Oh, Gehazi, you're in ministry. Don't be a taker. Oh, Gehazi. Verse 21. Gehazi pursued Naaman when Naaman saw him running after him. He got down from the chariot to meet him said, it, 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 Naaman's like, well, is all well? And he says, yeah, all, all's well. My master sent me saying, indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. So Naaman said, yeah, please, take two talents. And he urged him, and he bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them on ahead of him. And when he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand, stored them away in his house, in the house, and then he let the men go, and they departed. Now I went and stood before his master, Elisha, and, and Elisha said to him, where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, oh, your servant did not go anywhere. And then, you know, you should never lie to the prophet, by the way. Uh, verse 26. Then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the, when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves, vineyards, sheep, and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous, white as snow. Well, you know, to whom much is given, much is required. Think about Elisha. When Elijah threw his mantle on him, Elisha's like, oh, he just like, cut up the, the yoke, sacrificed the bulls, gave up his income, his security. He was all in. It's like Peter and Andrew following Jesus, leaving their fishing nets, right? All in. And here, Gehazi, he's the third guy in the sequence. Like, it's Elisha, Elijah. Now, Gehazi, he's being groomed to be that guy. See, just a word about ministry. When you, when you go on a ministry, it can never be about the financial gain. It just can never be that. It'll never work that way. It just can never, ever work that way. It has to be about serving the Lord, humility, brokenness, and serving people, and letting God take care of you. Because we have to live by faith in ministry. As believers, we're called to live by faith, but particularly if you're going to be like the next prophet, like Elijah, Elisha, Gehazi. It's just, you just got to, that's, that's what you're called to. I pray for all these missionary families that we, we support, all these people I look at who we might support. I spent days looking at uh, uh, the website for what was formerly the Inland China Mission, what Hudson Taylor started years ago. Hundreds of people all over the world, what they're doing. I'm looking at their stuff, who they are, and it's like, the reality of going out and, and going for it in ministry is so profound in the mission field. 
And you just, you just have to go knowing the Lord's going to take care of you. There has to be such an element of faith. And it is tempting to run after a name and say, you know what, we could use those couple bars of silver and garments right now. And I can't speak for anyone that's been in ministry for years where you live by faith. Like, you know, those silver bars look pretty good right now. I think Elijah should have accepted that in the general kitty for the staff, like me, the assistant. But that's, that's not how you're being trained to be the, greatest, the great prophet, Gehazi. There might be a time for vineyards and flocks and all that kind of stuff, but that time is not now and it's not for you. And that was a mistake, which brings us to a key thought. Gehazi was discontent in his calling. I'll tell you what we'll recommend calling really quick is his discontentment or his wife's discontentment. The men can sabotage it on their own by being discontent. The wives particularly can destroy a husband's calling. I've watched it happen so many times. Discontentment. Uh, You really, as you go forward in ministry, 35 years into it, you really appreciate the women who stand by their men who are all in in ministry. And again, I mentioned recently, that's why we love to support pastors' wives, pastors' widows, pastors' wives' widows, and minister people like that around the world, here in America, Latin America, Europe, Africa. That's what we do. That's what we do, because that's who we are. We want to take care of people that have proven that fruit of being all in. Godliness with contentment is great gain, the Bible tells us, and this is the great mistake for Gehazi. He had the calling, he had the position, he just, he needed to live by faith, instead he was moved by fear. And and we need to live by faith, and we need to have contentment. And there's peace with contentment, but where there's discontentment, there's not peace, there's confusion and turmoil. And where there's contentment, there's faith and peace, but where there's discontentment, there's fear and turmoil and uncertainty. And you don't have to be in ministry to be the pastor's wife to learn that one in your life experience. So there's a great application here. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And Paul said, I've learned to abound with a lot of stuff, and I've learned to abase with hardly anything, and I've learned I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what God wanted to teach Gehazi in his calling. But once he did this, and sometimes it just takes one day of one bad action to wreck a man's calling, and in his case, it did. And not only that, not only did it wreck his calling, it affected his children's calling too. Because it says it'll be on your descendants as well. Like, you know, you realize when we make really bad decisions based upon discontentment with the Lord, whether it's in finances or relationships or careers or anything, man, it affects everybody. It affects our spouses and our children and our children's children. I take that very seriously in my own life, having multiple grandkids now. It's like, Man, hey, even if it's not for you because you're selfish and prideful, make the right decisions for your grandkids. Amen? If you have grandkids, you know exactly what I'm saying. When I'm tempted for folly, I think, oh, man, I put those grandkids in front of my face, and that motivates me to walk the straight and narrow. How do I put leprosy on Dune or Wilkie or Remy or any of those kids? I want to put blessings upon them. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, the Lord knows what we need to restrain us from evil. And for you, it might be this. For them, it might be that. For me, grandkids is a great restraint from evil because they're going to be walking this planet when I'm gone and I want them to be fruitful uh, in the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit, not to be plagued by leprosy because I was stupid in my 60th year on planet Earth. Amen? Yeah, for sure. It's a good word. So we read on now, chapter 6. And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now the place where we dwell um, with you is too small for us. 
Please let us go to, to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there and let us make a place where we may dwell. So he answered, go. Then one, one of them said, please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees, but as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe fell off the, off the handle into the water, and he cried out and said, oh, that's my master, for it was borrowed. And so the man of God said, where did it fall? And he showed him the place, so he cut a stick and threw it in there. He made the iron float. Therefore he said, pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. I keep saying that there's little things with Elisha. We saw it last week where it's almost like a type of Christ. Well, who else weighs like an, uh, an axe and went on water, sank in water, and was pulled out of the water? Peter. <laughs> it's pretty amazing, right? This is against the laws of physics for the iron to sink and then be raised back up. When God wants to do supernatural, he'll do it. And when God wants to do supernatural in our life, we should be open to it and available to it and praise him for it, right? So... Uh, and the guy's like, hey, we need more space. And Elisha's like, great, go get it. Don't you like that? It's kind of like the woman in her empty vessels. Like as many as she got, they were filled. Not one less, not one more. And Elisha's like, oh, you need your own space? Like when you're, maybe you're adult. Because like, hey, mom, dad, I need more space. Go get it. Go get it. Remember in the book of Joshua, the tribe of Joseph came to, Joshua said, you know, we need more land. He's like, it's right up there. Well, the Canaanites are there with their chariots. And that's the land God's given you. Go get it. Go get it. You need more space? Go get it. And you're like, well, can you go with us? Dad, can you co-sign? <laughs> yeah, okay. We'll do that. Yeah, Elijah's like, yeah, I'll go with you. Yeah. You know, it's, it's good to have pops and mom backing you up on something, but, you know, you sign first. Go get it. Yeah. And, of course, I hate to borrow anything. This is why, because if it sinks, like, oh, no, I'm accountable for it. But you know what? The Lord bails us out. He brings relief and mercy, and that's what he did in this story. We read on now. Now we get a bigger story. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God, Elisha, sent to the king of Israel, saying, Hey, beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place, which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he, he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, Not, not my lord, O king, but Elisha, Elisha the prophet who's in Israel. He tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, mm, Go and see where he is that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, Surely he's in Dothan. And therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear for those who are with us or more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike the people, I pray, with blindness. And he, the Lord, struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Just like when Elisha prayed for rain, no rain. Elijah did. Now Elisha's like, blind, now they'll see. Now Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. So it was when they had come to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and there they were inside Samaria. The capital, you know, Israel, like northern king, like where the last place they expect to be. Now, when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? 
And he answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill them, those whom you had taken captive with sword and your bow? In other words, if they're prisoners of war, would you kill them? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away and they went to their master. So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. This is a great story. A couple quick things here. First of all, Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes, my servant's eyes, to see what I see. And this is a reminder to us, there's always way more going on around us in the spiritual realm than we think, right? You're never alone, like Paul said, though everyone forsook me, the Lord stood with me. And there's always an innumerable host of angels that are cheering us on, they're for us, they're with us, and they're going before us, they're coming behind us, the angel of the Lord goes before us, he's got our back. God's we're the apple of his eye. The moment we come to Christ and we trust in his saving blood and we're born of his spirit, man, and we're sealed in the Lamb's book of life, like, we have no idea how much is going on to save our life, to protect us from evil. Things we do know, things we don't know. Like when you have little kids, and this happens with the bonbon when he's in our house sometimes. We got this dining room table and it's right about headbanging level for a toddler, right? And you all with toddlers know how this is. And it's got a kind of pretty tough corner. It's wood. It's heavy wood. But, man, that'd be like, oh, that'd be a hell of a moment to hit that. Whenever he's around there, because that's kind of by the refrigerator and the little kitty table. And, and he's always, like, climbing up and doing all that stuff. But he didn't even know, like, we'll put our hand right over that and he'll bonk our hand, right? He doesn't, he'll never remember that we protected him. He's not even really aware of that moment that we soften the blow. He's hitting our hand instead of the, the hard wooden corner of the table. That's what the Lord does for us. He does that all the time. He's got our back all the time. All the time. When we're even aware of it and when we're not. And if you think that somehow he's abandoned you, just know he hasn't and he's got a plan and what he's allowing you to go through. There's a, a lesson in it. There's famines. There's... You know, Joseph being two years in prison served a purpose for God's greater glory, even though it had nothing to do with his own behavior. It wasn't self-inflicted, but it had a greater plan for a bigger purpose. But God's always doing this. And so we do need to, we really want to wake up every day as followers of Jesus Christ, if we are, and see the realm of the Spirit, to see the hand of the Lord giving favor at this situation or disfavor at that situation I remember when I was, you know, I told the story, but when I was let go by Surf Ride Board Shop back in the late 90s, and I, it was kind of stunning how it happened. I was like, well, it's the Lord. I mean, it's the Lord's will. He's got a plan in it, and that's all there is to it. Like, you need to look at things like that. Like, he gave favor to get hired. He, got, he gave disfavor to be moved out. Like, that's how the Lord works. We need the eyes of faith in our day-to-day experience that we can see where he's moving things in time, space, and matter from the eternal. And think about this. When the chariot came for Elijah... I told you, the curtain opens, the other dimension comes in, and it's trans-dimensional. The two dimensions are coexisting at the same time. And in the time, space, and matter where gravity rules and reigns, in the universe of eternity of the other dimension, the eternal dimension, it supersedes and rules over it. So just like Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego in the fire with Jesus, they don't smell like smoke. The dimension of eternity supersedes time because Eternity is forever and time is temporal. It will end. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. And so when the chariot came from Elijah, that's what happened. It's like in, out, boom, curtain closes. Like you're watching a theatrical performance, but it's real. Well, looky here. What do we get? So Elijah was left behind when the chariot came for Elijah. What happens here? He's seen, he's seen the chariots of fire everywhere. 
There's not just one that came for Elijah. He sees them all over the mountaintops. And his, you know, we don't, I doubt it's Gehazi, but his assistant's like, ah. And that's what we would do if God, we wouldn't be so worked up by anything we see in the news or people around us and over us, beside us and beneath us that cause us grief. We'd just be like, wow, chariots of fire around my marriage, around my mind, my heart, my life, the people I love, the people who hate me, chariots of fire everywhere. And that's what we got covering our back in our journey with Jesus Christ. His angels go before us and behind us, and there are chariots of fire all around us. And when our heart is tender to the Lord and our eyes are eyes of faith, we will see these things. Maybe not like this, but we'll still see. We'll feel like, the, like Billy Graham used to talk about the Holy Spirit's like the wind. You don't see the wind, but you see the effects of the wind. And so, too, God's got our back, and we don't see all that's going on, but we see the effects of what's going on when he's looking out for us. God is good all the time, and there's more of us than them. And we'll always be a minority in time, space, and matter because narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few enter thereby. And broad and wide is the path that leads to destruction, and many go thereby. There's never been a moral majority. But we'll always be salt and light as a minority, and that's our business. What God does through our life is his business, and what stands for us in all eternity is kingdom business. But we've got chariots of fire backing us in this journey. We're never alone. And we need to see that. Then you see in verse 22, where Elisha, like the kings, I mean, just the people of unbelief, small-minded kings with power, they never cease to amaze me. Oh, what, what do I do, Father? Do we execute him? Like, isn't that what politicians want to do all the time? Kill him. Kill them. Kill it. Kill this thought. Kill this. Cancel. Kill. Cancel, kill. Kill, kill, cancel. That's how they think. It's a threat to my power, but what do I do? Oh, do we kill him? Like, that's what tyrants do. That's not what the church does. <laughs> look, look what the church does. He feeds them. He tells the king, look, king, you got it all wrong right now. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to prepare a feast for him. You're going to feed him. You're going to give him water. You're going to refresh him, and you're going to send him home. You are in the place of power, and you're going to show meekness with the power. What did Jesus do? Meekness is power under control. That's what meekness is. And that's what Jesus Christ was all the time. Power under control. Remember when they came to arrest him? And he says, whom do you seek? They go, and they all fall down. Like he knocked them down with his power as the son of God. Just to show them who really was in control. When Peter cut off the servant's ear, what did he do? He healed the ear to show them who was really in control. Meekness is power under control. And Elisha's telling the king, why don't you show us that you don't always rule and reign with a sword in your hand? Let me show you how I can work in the kingdom. You could do this, but you can do this instead. Because what does Jesus teach us in the Sermon on the Plain, the Sermon on the Mount? To love our enemies, to bless those who curse you and spitefully use you. This is, this is good counsel. Just, you could do this, but it's better to do that. And why would you just think right away, kill them? They're... Well, Abraham Lincoln said the, be the best enemy is the one that you made your friend. It's so much better to make your enemy your friend than to keep him. When you made him your friend, you've lost an enemy. Now, this story gets better because it gets us thinking as we go forward because this story sets up the next story. But at any rate, it's like 
Look what it says. So the bands of raiders. Okay, so the Syrian raiders didn't come. Now the Syrian army is going to come, but the raiders didn't come. Whoever these guys were, they're like, man, dude, we got to go home and just forget it. You know what I'm saying? Like we found grace, we found mercy. There's, there's no. These people could have wiped us out. Like let's just go. Let's enough of this. Let's just go home and rethink our life. It says they never, they didn't come anymore. The people that were released and blessed by the king, they didn't do this anymore. They found grace and mercy when they could have found wrath and judgment. And they were different for it. It was a great lesson for the king, but he didn't get it. Verse 24. And it happened after that, that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all of his army. See, this is a different group, but it's still Syrians. And he went up and besieged Samaria. So think if you're like the son of Ahab, Joash, right now. You're just going like, oh my goodness, I just fed those Syrians. And these guys are here trying to take everything. Well, sometimes that happens. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of the cob of dove droppings. Dung was for five shekels of silver. They were eating donkey heads and dung. Um, but if you study starvation, this is what happens with starvation. Then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help me, o, o, my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord does not help you, where can I find help for you from the threshing floor from the wine press then the king said to her what is troubling you and she said well this woman said to me give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow so we boiled my son and ate him and i said to her on the next day give your son that we may eat him but she has hidden her son now it happened when the king heard the words of the woman he tore his clothes and he passed by on the wall the people looked and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body he said god do so to me and more so if the head of elisha the son of shaphat remains on him today see he's blaming elijah for the famine he's blaming elisha we'll get to that verse 32 but elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him and the king sent a man ahead of him but before the messenger came to him he said to the elders hey you know what you see this guy See how this son of a murderer, he's talking about Ahab's son, the king, has sent someone to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still talking with them, there was a messenger coming down him. Then the king had said, surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? So Elijah's is functioning in full faith, in a famine, trusting the Lord. The people of unbelief, they're under the famine, and the king is failing the test. Why should I wait any longer for the Lord? You know, it's always too soon to quit on the Lord, right? Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up like with wings of an eagle. They'll run and not grow weary. Like waiting on the Lord is part of the whole process. When Jesus came upon the scene where Lazarus had died four days before, Martha and Mary like, oh, if he'd only been here on time. He was on time. They, were, they felt like he was late. But whether it's a famine for your life or a famine in general or whatever it might be for the believer, waiting on the Lord is just part of the experience. Learning to wait on the Lord, be patient, slow it down, and let God reveal himself to us is crucial. He works on his timetable, not ours, but he will always be working in our life as we belong to him. Of course, people eating their own children is just incomprehensible except in the book of Leviticus we're told this would happen when they rebelled against the Lord. Nothing they ever did in the desperate sieges of their time is surprising. God warned them in his covenant, the book of the law of Moses, he warned them, if you obey me, you're the head, not the tail, and you have blessings. If you disobey me and rebel against my word, you'll be the tail, not the head. Instead of being the lender, you'll be the debtor. And your curses will come upon you. You'll be besieged by other people. I'll remove you from the land. You'll be besieged and you'll eat your own children's flesh. He told them that. 
And why is it that we think, oh, that would never happen? Human beings are so desperate in the worst of situations. I mean, we are so desperate. And when we're starving to death, we are actually most desperate. The U.S. Army did a study on starvation back during World War II. And it was, it was just like, I won't even go into it. But they learned something. We just, we all become, we're all capable of becoming cannibals uh, when we're starving to death. And we think, I would never do that. But like, I hope I never find out. I hope I never find out. Well, and I, I won't, ideally, because it says the Lord will provide for us, and he's never seen his descendants begging for bread in the gates of the city. So I trust that he'll give us our daily bread. But, you know, people in prison of war, these types of things, is, is brutal on the mind, and the mind goes crazy when you're starving to death. But he said this is what would happen. You know, when bad calamity happens to humanity or to a country or to people, to a business or a person or a marriage or a family, it, you can't ever say the Lord didn't warn you. Because the way of blessings for an individual, a marriage, a family, a church, a business, a country, it's all in his word. And the warnings against bad things for those who rebel against his word is all in his word. Let God be true, every man a liar. Let the word judge us. We've got all these smart people, smart ox against God, judging his word right now on planet Earth. And it's not going to be a good ending for them, no matter what country they're from, what language they speak, or what time zone they're in. The Lord will always have the final say. God is not mocked. That's the bottom line. So it's a, it's a bad situation for them. And of course, what happens so often is they blame the believers, right? You, oh, it's, it's the, uh, you know, like, and you picture the king of Israel going like, you know, he told me to let those people go. I fed them, I gave them a banquet, and now I don't have any food. We're eating donkey heads and babies. But you see, he never had faith. If he had ever truly put his faith and trust in the Lord and not been the son of a murderer, as Elisha called him, God would have provided. God would have made a way for him. And it was too early to quit because it's about to get, God's about to break the siege, which leads us to a third chapter tonight because it really is connected to six. So this is one text. I'll read the text, and we have one key application before we shift gears to communion. Then Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a say of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two says of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God, Elisha, and said, Look, look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And Elisha said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat it. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we enter the city, the famine's in the city, and we shall die there. If we sit here, we shall also die. Now therefore, come let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live, and if they kill us, well... You know, we shall only die. And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight. And they left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, and their donkeys. And they fled for their lives. And when the lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent, they ate and drank, and carried from it silver and gold and clothing, and went and hid them. <laughs> they won the lottery, right? Then they came back and entered another tent and carried some of that from them. They're like, whoa, 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 yeah. And they went and hid it. But then they said to one another, we're not, what we're doing is not right. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. 
So they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, hey, we went to the Syrian camp and surprisingly no one was there. Not a human sound. Only horses and donkeys tied and the tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out and they told it to the king's household inside. So the king arose in the night and said to his servants, let me now tell you what the Syrians have done. This is what unbelief gets you. This is what small-minded thinking, rejecting God and unbelief gets you. Let me, let me tell you what the Syrians have done. They, they know that we are hungry. Therefore, they've gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying when they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. See, the pure, all things are pure, but to defile, nothing's pure. This guy's mind is defiled. He never learned to live by faith. He lived by fear, and that's who he is. And it's all revealed right there in verse 12. Verse 13. And one of his servants answered, said, please, it's almost like the servant to uh, Naaman, eh, please, let several men take five remaining horses which are left in the city. Look, they may either become like the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed, I say, they may become like the multitudes of Israel that are left from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. Therefore, they took two chariots with horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army, saying, go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan. Indeed, all the road was full of garments and weapons, which the Syrians had thrown down away in their haste. So the messenger returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. So a say of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two say of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate, but the people trampled him in the gate, and he died, just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. So it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, Two says of barley for a shekel and a say of fine flour for a shekel shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. Then the officer had answered the man of God saying, now look, if the Lord can make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And Elijah had said to him, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat it. And so it happened to him for the people trampled him in the gate and he died. So like I was just saying, God has the final say. WG, you definitely are a healthy, strong church, and most of you have very strong walks. You are living by faith. We're told that we're justified by faith, we walk by faith, we live by faith. It's an adventure of faith, and, and I know most of you very well, and I know you're living a life of faith. So we're, we're really like Elijah going like, hey, this is the way it's going to be, whether you like it or not. That's what we're like. We're the messengers of truth, and if our family wants to receive it at Thanksgiving, good for them. If not, that's just the way it is, right? Like, we are truth. We are messengers of truth, and we speak truth. And there, there's always a good ending for those who put their trust in the Lord. And there's always a bad ending for people who reject his word and judge his word and end up being judged by his word. And you wish it wasn't so, but it is. It's very self-fulfilling in that self-determining in that way. If we choose to, to believe and receive we're going to be born in the Spirit. We're going to be powered by, empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a fruitful life and to keep going forward in the faith and in the Spirit from glory to glory, as it says in 2 Corinthians. But if we harden our heart and live in unbelief, to the defiled, nothing's pure. There's just, you know, that's why it says in Revelation, like, those that are pure are pure, let them be pure forever, and those that are defiled, let them be defiled forever, because you are when you cross that threshold of the next dimension. So keep growing by faith. Stay faithful in the famine. Don't be swayed by the son of a murderer who's the king or whatever. Don't be afraid to speak the truth, stand for the truth, and be the truth. Because in the end, is anything too hard for the Lord? No. Nothing's too hard for the Lord. And our gathering tonight is built on all those promises 
of what he would, said he would do from Genesis to Malachi. And he did it in the Son, Jesus Christ, of which the communion elements speak of tonight. And the things he's going to do for our glory are still in the future. He fulfilled every word concerning his first coming, and he will fulfill every word concerning his second coming. And everything he's spoken through the, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, everything he's spoken through the apostles, the acts of the apostles, the epistles, all, it's all going to come to pass. And so we're the people that believe God can open the heavens and the price of barley can be quite different tomorrow in one day's time. We don't ever want to be the people who just mock God and say, how could that happen? Who has fought the Lord and prospered? The Bible says, nobody, ever. We bow the knee, we bear the fruit, and we're blessed in Jesus' name.